There are several components to any answer that we might try to give to the question we posed in episode 1029 about whether and to what extent it's possible to be mistaken about our own happiness, our own states of happiness, our contentment, our fulfilment, and so on. First, we should observe that within the kind of dual framework that we're exploring, we shouldn't expect words like happiness, contentment, fulfilment, success, and so on, if they and the concepts they name survive at all, to carry the same meanings in our dual space that they do in our own space. Our own, that is, unreformed, unreconstructed space. So there can be no definitive or legitimate answer that makes proper sense while we remain in the unreformed framework dictated by what human beings find natural intuitive, instinctively attractive, and in a word, comfortable. The second thing to observe is that we would no longer expect there to be some external standard that dictates an answer to our question. Although it might be to some extent true of the state that we have inherited, ideally neither of our dual states would be attempting to live up to such an external standard, even though we have traditionally couched human perfectibility, if I can call it that, in such terms. We've always wanted to see our lives either as being defined from the beginning by some sort of inheritance of a soul or as having some kind of destiny that we desperately try to discover and live out. But the notion that there is no plan, no destiny, is one that we need to get used to because it's an essential component of the dual state that I'm arguing for. And the third thing I'd want to say, although I might once have been tempted to couch this solely in terms of what I've called before resonance, to centre my answer on what we might call that which resonates most fully to our present state of being. I now think that we can do better than that by putting together the notion of resonance with the notion of self-play and self-improvement. That whereas we need to assess where we are from where we are, that doesn't imply that we can't move forward if we learn by self-play to define and map and traverse 
our own learning journey, a journey not dictated, not written in the laws of the universe, not predetermined. Alpha Zero, it seems to me, is a wonderful example of what can be achieved if we abandon all those assumptions. So let's remind ourselves briefly of DeepMind's remarkable achievement in Alpha Zero. It was given the rules of chess, told what the purpose of the game was, and then it played itself. With no human intervention at all, no examples of human games, no human involvement. But because it's a computer, it was able to play itself hundreds of thousands, if not millions of times, very quickly. And in roughly four hours of self-play, admittedly at a phenomenal speed, completely beyond any human being, became not only the best chess player in the world as far as human opponents would be concerned, but the best chess-playing computer in the world as well, against some pretty formidable opposition that had been around for some time. Now, our question, can we be wrong about how happy we are, strikes me as being rather like a question that we might have asked of Alpha Zero before it started training. How good a player can it become? It's not a good question. It's very much the sort of question we ask in our intuitively clear, absolutist, eternal, fixed frame of reference, our first half of our dual space, our duality. The only way we could answer that question isn't to predetermine the answer, but to say instead that we'll wait and see. We'll see how good it becomes, just as I'm suggesting we should see how good we can become. This process that I'm looking for a suitable term for, but we could call it iterative self-play, translates into a corresponding process of iterative self-discovery based upon not just resonance, but incremental resonance, in which by testing out various strategies, we discover different kinds and levels of fulfilment, different kinds and levels of achievement, different kinds and levels of success and fulfilment, and perhaps, if the concept survives at all, happiness. Nobody else, nobody and nothing external to us then dictates this standard or these standards. They are, to use one of Michael Polanyi's happier expressions, self-set standards. But I'd like to go back to the second observation, 
so that we don't miss its significance. When I say that there's no external absolute standard, I mean, well, perhaps more than it might appear that I mean at first sight. It's not just that there is no absolute external standard, it's that there's nothing against which we could possibly set that standard. Because the nature of the self, you and me, at our particular stage in life's journey, by whom we might seek to measure and against which external standard we might, in our folly, think we could be measured, that self doesn't exist. Such a standard derives its apparent authority from a metaphysical assumption that belongs to the age when we believed in souls, that what we are is in some sense already established, written in the stones, written in the runes, written in the laws of the universe, written in our destiny. And we are judged on this assumption by whether we've succeeded in meeting our supposed obligations to realise our potential. Have we become that self which was foreordained? Have we even become that self which we could become in someone else's eyes? Something that can be measured by external criteria, whether of the universe or of society. Are we, in this unreconstructed view, what we are supposed to be? Supposed to be by whom or what, we should certainly ask. There is, in my view, no such self, and there are no such standards, both a remnants of a comfortable, intuitively obvious and attractive world like Newton's mechanics, in which something like Paul Kripke's rigid designation might hold, and we are what we are potentially, and we are measured against how well we have done in becoming what we are. But this is, as I've said many a time before, nonsense. Not only nonsense, but dangerous and destructive nonsense of that. It's very much of a, of a part of, or of, of a piece with necessitarianism. It wasn't for nothing that Kripke called his book Naming and Necessity. So with necessitarianism and with determinism, with the notion that we are somehow dictated by the past and as such intrinsically delimited by some set of qualities forged in some kind of eternity, forever. And once you're sensitised to the ubiquity of this metaphor, you see it everywhere. You see it even in what should otherwise be a rather more expansive interpretation of Asimov's Foundation trilogy in the Apple TV adaptation. But leaving aside Isaac Asimov and television, 
This is also exactly what a particular kind of right-wing political and philosophical thinking wants to be true and wants us to believe. That some are predestined to greatness, wealth, power, fame, cleverness, and everything else that we think of as being meritorious. That's probably going to have to change as well. Some even to be monarchs and leaders designated by some hypothetical god. And everyone else must just trudge along in their wake because that is their destiny as well. The purpose of education and acculturation on such a view is simply to ensure that we each know our place and stay in it and don't kick against the goad, don't rebel, don't object, don't try pretentiously to be more than this everlasting destiny has dictated that we should be. But my argument all along is that nothing of the kind is the case. We can each become whatever we wish to become, circumstances permitting, and what we're capable of becoming is both impossible to say and impossible even to conceive in advance of achieving it. Like the question, how good at chess can Alpha Zero become? Or indeed, although this probably does need scare quotes, how happy can we be? And so we start to see the reflexive nature of all these questions, including the question of happiness. And why once we aspire to occupy a dual space, defined in opposition to these terms, a space where nothing is decided in advance and there are no limits to what we may each achieve, we can begin to rebuild our lives, rebuild our society, rebuild our social lives according to very different principles from which the traditional senses of inferiority and superiority of leadership, of discipleship, of followers are eliminated. And we can in so doing throw off the shackles of a self-understanding that's been with us more or less since the beginning of human history, with a few notable exceptions. But even this doesn't say enough, although it says a lot. We need, in addition, to establish a principle that has even 
greater reach. That just as there are no external absolute standards, so words like happiness don't in fact refer to anything unless and until they are established in the lives of particular individuals and even then only in a transformed and in essence unrecognisable sense. There just is no such thing as happiness. There is only that state which is suited to me or you or some individual alone in the consummation of their existence. A consummation opaque to everyone, including themselves, until it is established. Now, to avoid trying to say too much, I'm going to avoid dealing here with the question whether the notion of the individual survives our translation into our dual space, because I don't think it does. And eventually, even the notion of the individual will have to be set aside. But we will come back to that eventually. So, to say again, there is no such thing as happiness. There's nothing to which it refers, no state that it names. There's only an illusion born and supportive of a comfortable but flawed way of thinking of the world and our place in it. So while we regretfully continue to use the word happiness along with many others because we're habituated to them and can't yet think our way beyond or out of them, we do so only in the hope and frankly expectation that it will gradually wither and eventually disappear because it will be seen to name something that doesn't exist in our new dual space. Only in the flawed side of our duality. Now there will be those who will ask how we can possibly deny the existence of happiness. But we can only reply that we're working our way despite the habits of mind that we have inherited towards a way of thinking in the dual space of our lives where we no longer conceive of happiness, let alone aspire to it, let alone believe in its existence or its reality or even its desirability. We will replace it with something better richer, deeper, more resonant. I suppose someone could still legitimately argue that we've nevertheless not really answered the question we set ourselves. How do we assess the adequacy of our happiness, or to put it rather more grandly, of our state of being? Specifically, how do we tell whether we've reached what I just called our consummation, although I think that concept is going to have to go as well. Does such a question really merit an answer? Is it not fundamentally ill-conceived 
once we see and acknowledge that the very notion of a consummation of a life is just some kind of metaphysical fiction built upon assumptions that make us feel comfortable or some of us feel good, particularly the healthy, wealthy and wise, the rich, the famous, the successful, so designated, self-styled. But is there a consummation that is foreseeable if there is no consummation determined by standards that are prior to and external to ourselves? Now, I have to confess that the parallel here, which is quite strong between Newton's physics and what I am criticising, does involve a shift that's superficially, perhaps more than superficially, very similar, in as much as it involves, entails, leaving behind some notion of the absolute alongside Newton's notion of absolute space and time, and so with it an absolute frame of rest relative to which everything must of necessity be measured and measurable. This absolute eternal realm is a convenient and comfortable fiction invented by Newton because it is a very comfortable assumption, particularly in a theistic framework, but it's a fiction nonetheless. By contrast, in Einstein's universe, everything defines its own frame of reference and in variance is what we expect of the laws observed from it. Who are we? Where are we? When are we? These questions and our answers to them should make no difference to the physical laws we observe. Now, at first sight, that seems as though it might entail a contradiction. Haven't we just said that there are no universal laws, and yet these seem, if anything, even more invariant than any that we inherited from Newton. But I'm not here insisting on an exact parallel between the laws of human behaviour or the characteristics of human behaviour, life, living, sentient behaviour, and the laws of the universe. I don't think it's a contradiction because I think that it's saying that in a human frame, in a nominalist human frame, where we each define our own reality, our own purpose, our own meaning, what matters, what we value, in such a universe where the laws defining my life are therefore unique to me, nobody situated elsewhere has any right or capacity to tell me what those criteria should be, still less what they are. They are entirely governed not just by what I am, 
by where I am and when I am, but by what I am becoming, where I am going, and how I will deal with and use the time available to me. These self-set standards, these laws that are unique to me, and therefore in a sense not really laws at all, are defining my trajectory and defined by the iterative resonances that I want to explore as a means of living my life dynamically in a moving framework of thought, of possibility, the like of which an absolute external frame of reference does not allow. So something needs to happen to help us to shift our mindset from an old-style absolute frame of reference into one that is as dynamic as life itself. So we have some work to do. Thank you for listening.